Thanks for listening to the Frontiers podcast. If you have a moment before we start, please rate and follow this podcast. It makes a huge difference. The more of you that do this, the more people get to listen. And the more people that get to listen, the bigger platform I'm building for academics to share their research. Thanks so much. Hi there, you're listening to Frontiers, the podcast that explores cutting-edge research from the world's best scientists. I'm Ian Hallett, and in each episode, I interview professors, doctors, and research scientists who are leading authorities in technology, economics, business, politics, the environment, and sociology, so we can learn about the scientific breakthroughs that will redefine our world. Today, I'm delighted to share with you my discussion with Professor Florian Ludica-Freund from ESCP Business School. Florian is Professor of Corporate Sustainability with an expertise in corporate sustainability management and sustainability entrepreneurship with a particular focus on value-based innovation and sustainable business models. As well as publishing numerous journal articles, books and book chapters on these topics, he is Editorial Review Board Member at Organisation and Environment, co-editor of several journal special issues and Chair for Corporate Sustainability at ESCP Business School. My discussion with Florian is wide and very interesting and discusses his research about the different types of business models that are required to create a sustainable business. Now, sustainability, we defined as being very broad to cover both environmental sustainability, but also profit and economic sustainability and sustainability from the eyes of customers and shareholders and various other stakeholders. It's a really, really interesting conversation. We get into some fascinating discussions about the different types of businesses that are already adopting these types of business models. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And for now, please enjoy my conversation with Professor Florian Ludica-Freund. Let's start right at the top. Your research focuses on corporate sustainability with a particular emphasis on sustainable business model design. Just so we can frame the conversation for everybody, could you explain what you mean by a sustainable business model? Sure. So um, I think we should first define what what is a business model in general, because this is where it comes from. Um, And um, so it's now common to say that a business model describes how an organization creates value. And um, typically it's about value for its customers, but also value for itself, value for its partners. And um, then this notion of value creation is typically broken down into different aspects of value creation, like you know, what kind of value is proposed, how is it delivered, what are the mechanisms the organization is using to, to capture a share of this value. And this overall is what we typically refer to when we use the term business model. And what types of value are you talking about? Is this economic value or is it, or is it broader than that? It depends on, on, on the stakeholder you're talking about. So from a customer's perspective, it's for sure customer value. You know, it's the benefits that um, are being created for a customer. It could be convenience, you know, great functionality in products, you know, in general, you know, the ability to solve problems for customers. And then when the problem is solved, this creates value for a customer. If we talk about um, stakeholders like a supplier, for example, a, a partner of a company, for them, it's, you know, stable relationships. It's, you know, good contracts. It's being paid for for the things the partner is, is doing for the focal company. And for the focal company itself, it's um, at the end of the day, it's, it's many things, but at the end of the day, it's, of course, a positive financial bottom line. Okay, got it. So we're going to append now 
or attach somehow sustainability to the definition of business models. So how does that change or refine the definition of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as you can imagine, um, the concept or framework of business model, you know, in its very traditional meaning is already quite complex. You know, I just, you know, touched three aspects like a custom orientation, things happening in the supply chain, uh, but also the financial implications for a focal organization. And there's even more to it. Yeah. Um, and if we now move towards the notion of sustainable business model, it becomes more complex. And um, what, um, what what you can see in, in, in the literature, um, which has developed this notion of sustainable business model in the past, let's say, 15 years, is that... Um, in, in terms of a definition and, and maybe even a theory of sustainable business models, um, scholars seem to agree on, on a limited set of characteristics we can refer to. And it's typically four characteristics. And then the first is that a business model that is said to be a sustainable or sustainability-oriented business model um, shows some kind of sustainability orientation. So, and then this sounds trivial or it sounds maybe like, you know, now I'm trying to explain, you know, the term sustainable by saying it means it's sustainable, but it's not like this. So a sustainability orientation means that in, in the design of the business model, you find indications that the business developers were thinking about much more than just financial viability or financial sustainability. You, if you find indications that, for example, um, resource efficiency, you know, or this idea of doing no harm to the environment or the idea of being inclusive to, you know, um, other social stakeholders, more than just customers and suppliers, that these ideas were guiding, you know, business development. Yeah, so there's a certain orientation um, towards a non-financial purpose. And if you take a closer look at the business models companies apply, you can find indications for these orientations or for these ideas in, in the way they develop the business and the way they are running their business. So, and this is what we, what we kind of, you know, try to express by referring to a sustainability orientation. So that's the first characteristic. And is that always something to do with social good, environmental good, is it good governance? Is it ESG essentially in a dressed up in a different way? Oh, this <laughs> this could now open a very big box. Uh, <laughs> well, let's open the box. <laughs> um, but first of all, yeah, you're right. So it's it's about um, creating positive externalities. Okay, that makes know? it clear. This is how it's framed in economics, and and of course, if if I'm designing my business model. Um, for example, with the idea in mind to be as resource efficient as I can. This, of course, is an attempt of creating kind of positive ecological externalities. Okay, that's clear. So you said there were four different characteristics. That was the right. first one. What are the other three? So the second is multi-value creation. So, and then that's kind of um, kind of a consequence or it's, 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 it's an outcome of a sustainability orientation. Let's again talk about resource efficiency, for example. So then um, I'm trying to not only create value for my customers, suppliers and myself, but I'm also trying um, to create value that goes beyond these narrow understandings and notions of value. You know, it's, um, 
yeah, we, we can say it's, it's, for example, trying to create value for the environment, which is, of course, you know, it's 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 maybe a bit weird to 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 frame it that way, yeah. Because there is, you know, can nature really value what we do for nature? <laughs> it's it's related to the question of whether nature is a stakeholder or not, and it's kind of an an, an undecided question or an, an unanswered question. So if I contrast the first two, sustainability orientation and multi-value mm-hmm. creation, it sounds to me like, and this is to clarify that I've understood. The sustainability orientation is about ensuring that you have a broad, a broader set of considerations um, beyond financial and beyond customer uh, when you're thinking about the design of your business model, and that's that's essentially I, I would frame that in my own mind as do no harm, try and be at least neutral to the environment uh, and to the other social um, agendas that you need to be considerate of. The multi-value creation sounds like that you're being proactive. So you're trying to do something to help the environment. You're trying to do something to help the social causes. Is that the way to, it almost builds on, so one builds on the other. Is that the way to think about it? So one builds on the other or they are related. Um, I, I would not say one is more reactive or may, more about maintaining and the other is more proactive. But, but you are pointing to a very important um, point here. The sustainability orientation can be based on the idea of maintaining, sustaining, for example, the environment and society. But it can also be on much more ambitious ideas like, for example, regenerating the environment and society. So in the past two or three years, this notion of regeneration you know, came up and, and we are now debating what is a regenerative economy, what are regenerative business models. So it can be more than just maintaining or sustaining. Um, and for and this has implications for the idea of multi-value creation, which is um, first, if I'm trying to create more than just financial value, I have to be aware of the different needs, for example, of different stakeholders. I have to be aware of the different environmental problems. And then I have to find a way of dealing with it in a way that at the end of the day, I create a positive outcome. I have a positive effect. And this, if I'm successful, is, you know, it's in essence creating value for different stakeholders, which means I'm creating different types of value. Okay, that's clear. So let's move on to the third characteristic. Yes. So it's systems thinking. Um, so if, if I have my sustainability orientation and I, I would like to be resource efficient or even regenerative, I would like to create value for multiple types of stakeholders, I it, it kind of follows from, from these ambitions that I have to not only focus on myself, on my product, on my processes. I really have to focus on, for example, where do my resources come from? You know, w- what's the cradle? I have to think about how do I design the product? How is my customer using the product? What happens at the end of life? You know, it's really thinking about from cradle to grave, or in the best case, from cradle to cradle. For example, when we talk about physical products. And this requires, you know, the ability to think Think in terms of systems, you know, sourcing systems, use systems, systems, you know, which help me to get rid of my products and waste and so on. An example is interface carpets. They are producing carpet and um, they they are really innovative and um, pioneers. And nowadays they offer um, zero carbon carpets, carpets, and I think even carbon negative carpets. 
And they have thought about their products in a very rigorous and systems-oriented way to be able you know, to design these products. It's just an example. Lifecycle assessment is another example for, for systems thinking. Is this where the circular economy think, thinking comes from? Yeah, if you think about circular economy or circular business model approaches, you, you for sure you have to apply a systems lens. Okay, that makes sense. That's that's very clear. So, um, and the fourth characteristic. Yeah, it's sake, it's um, stakeholder inclusion. Again, it's it's related to, to the other principles. If I have a sustainability orientation, if I want to create multiple types of value, if I am engaging in systems thinking. I, I immediately have to consider many stakeholders simultaneously. And um, it's kind of a normative assumption, but you know, it's, it's also about being inclusive to these stakeholders. Yeah, not just perceive a customer as someone paying money for a product or service, but also kind of a source of inspiration, innovation. You know, my local neighbors are not just my neighbors. Maybe they can become my business partners even. Yeah. So stakeholder inclusion or the ability to really consider different stakeholders, that's the fourth principle. Okay, and I think you said that these ideas, these characteristics have emerged over the last 10 to 15 years. So can you just talk through the, the history of why they have emerged and why this is now important and why this definition of, of business models, which I'm assuming at some point in the future, the sustainable bit will drop from the business model sustainability idea and it will just be the way that we all do business. So, so why has this happened uh, over the last 10 to 15 years and why is it important? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question. So um, the, the business model concept as such emerged around 25 years ago. So it was, you know, this uh, first big boom of e-business and, you know, internet business and internet business models. And um, this kind of challenged people to find new ways to talk about how companies do business because now things were kind of um, digital and no longer physical. You couldn't really touch it. You couldn't really see it, which, which meant that people had to find new ways to express their ideas of how to do business. And um, so then the business model concept kind of emerged as the way of expressing these ideas. And it became kind of... Um, um, the little sister or little brother of strategy. You know, the business model concept is, is very much related to the field of strategic management and to the field of um, information technology yeah, due to its origin. Um, and then around 15 years ago, so in 2008, there's a first milestone paper on, on, on business models from a sustainability perspective. Um, you know, the, the question kind of naturally came up, you know, if we talk about business models, um, what would it mean if we talked about companies that use their business models to contribute to sustainable development? Kind of a natural, naturally emerging question. And this happened around 15 years ago. So it's, it's a very young discourse, a very young field. And um, these principles I just mentioned it's something that we identified in our research, um, let's say, some five, six, seven years ago already. It was based on, you know, taking all the different bits and pieces, the different ideas floating around 
in trying to find um, to find out what's what's the common sense in the community. And it's these principles. And I would argue that, you know, until today and in 2023, um, these principles are still kind of guiding principles when we talk about sustainable business models. So when you um, take the kind of two different parallel worlds, the academic world and the real business world where companies are creating value in the ways that they do. Has this been a, to what, well, to what extent is this emergence of this idea, a result of academics observing what's happening in the real world and trying to make sense of it? And therefore the people that are running these companies are either consciously or subconsciously creating these business models because they're responding to a certain external factor that's driving them to do that, or they see an opportunity that's driving to do that. Or is it more about um, academics proposing that this may be a new way of doing business and therefore suggesting that the business world follows that lead? That's a very interesting question. Um, so in my opinion, so in my very personal view as a researcher, um, I think we as researchers, we are kind of um, amplifying different developments we are, we are perceiving. Um, I, I think it's not us who invented the idea of a sustainable business model or a green or a social or a circular business model. It's more things that are happening. You know, social entrepreneurs have been around forever. Green entrepreneurs have been around forever, yeah? Um, and then they did not wait for us to give it a name, yeah? It's just like, um, I think that's what, what social scientists are doing. We are observing different developments, and then we try to, to make sense of what's going on and try to clarify. And, and, and of course, you know, coming up with definitions and frameworks and theories as part of this clarification and amplification process. And then we are giving it back, you know, to the world. And, and how, how do we do it? We write papers and books. <laughs> and, and here I see a very, um, very important challenge, which is uh, I'm, I'm well aware that, you know, the many papers I have written um, are rarely read by um, practitioners. Yeah. So we are seeing, observing, we are amplifying, we are categorizing, trying to clarify what's happening. But then, you know, there's, in my perception, in my personal view, there's kind of a barrier, you know, um, which, uh, which we have to overcome, you know, to provide feedback to practitioners, to the real world, so to speak. And then, then you know, to be able to learn together and to, to develop new things together. Okay, that's a great segue to your book on sustainable business model design. Um, this is a book that I found before we met uh, when I was doing the preliminary research for my own PhD. And it's the reason why you're my supervisor is because uh, I was very interested in what you were talking. You were kind enough to agree to help me with my PhD. So could you just talk through, I love, I love the framework in the book uh, and it actually makes sense. It, it helps you make sense of what's going on. So as a business person, which I predominantly am, uh, it felt very familiar. The, the different business models that you were proposing made sense to me in the real world, which shows, I think, this interaction between the academic world, the researchers identifying the patterns and making sense of them, which in many ways are responding to what people are doing in the real world anyway, but it's kind of putting it in such a way that 
that makes it available for everybody uh, in a in a digestible form. So, could you just talk about your framework of of how you how you came about it and and the kind of the key characteristics of it? Of course. So, but but first, thanks a lot for the for the nice feedback on on the book. So it was a lot of work, you know that. Um, um, yeah, Henning, Lorenzo, and and and, and myself, we, we put into this um, project. So, the the book Sustainable Business Model Design has its origin in the question: What types of sustainable business model do exist? So, it's a question you know that you to you know it's 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 a question that researchers are asking. You know, what 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 does exist? How can we classify what's existing? And, and this was kind of the motivation many, many years ago, um, around 2015. And it made us review a lot of papers, books, and um, case studies. And um, guided by this question, we found um, more than 100 um, potential types of sustainability-oriented, to be more precise, business models. And then we... You know, we did a critical review and um, we were looking for, you know, patterns that were coming up again and again. And this led to the identification of the 45 patterns for sustainable business model design we are um, presenting in the book. So a lot of research, you know, review and then coming up with a new framework of these 45 patterns. Could you talk about the framework? Because you you classify these these different. Well, we go into each. We're going to not all forty five. I think we don't have time for that. We're going to some of the most interesting or or the ones that you want to talk about. But you map them across a, a multi dimensional framework because they're, they're they're emphasizing different elements of I think the sustainability characteristics. Could you just describe the the framework that, that each of these models sit within. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so this was, of course, um, a big challenge because we we knew that you know a long list of forty five is not very attractive. You know, it, it brings some order to to the world, but um, it's it's not attractive. And, and our ambition was to create something that's intuitively appealing, which helps people to navigate this huge variety because forty five is a lot. Um, and um, then we decided to use um, a classic sustainability triangle. You know, you have you can imagine a triangle, and one corner is representing ecological issues, another is representing social issues, and the third corner is representing economic issues. You know, you can say it's um, the three pillars of sustainable development, or it's kind of um, you know the triple bottom line perspective. It's just. Um, now, it's common to refer to these three dimensions when we talk about sustainability. And we were asking the question, um, to which of these three corners does each pattern relate? And um, to make sure we are not biased by our own opinions and experiences, we asked um, 10 different experts to help us with um, classifying the 45 patterns on this triangle. And what, what came up at the end is a triangle where you have 45 dots on the triangle and some are more closer to the um, ecological corner, others are closer to the social corner and others are closer to the economic corner and some are in the middle, which means it's business model patterns that have the potential to help with um, ecological, social, and economic challenges. So that's the first framework element. It's these 45 patterns located on a sustainability triangle. 
And you know, you don't have to read the book. You can just take a look at the triangle. And if you're interested, for example, in ecological sustainability, you can just take the triangle and see that, oh, these patterns in, in groups number three and four, they are related to ecological things. And then you directly jump, you know, to chapter, um, to the patterns chapter and look up, you know, the, the patterns that might be interesting to you. So, but, but this is maybe a little bit academic still. Yeah. So, and, and then we were thinking about how would a practitioner look at these patterns? And then it occurred that um, we, we can find 11 underlying themes in these 45 patterns. And the theme is, for example, something like um, which patterns can help in designing revenue and pricing models. I think or we were thinking this is what practitioners might be interested in. Um, which patterns can help us to close the material and energy loop of an loops of an organization? Which patterns can help us to move from products to services? So we came up with 11 of such overarching questions, and, and that's kind of um, another framework element which allows for a different type of navigation, which is more coming from the questions that business people might ask. Sorry to interrupt. Please give me 30 seconds of your time. I want to say two things. First, you're halfway through this episode. If you're enjoying it, please follow this podcast on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Second, lots of listeners of this podcast are research scientists. If that's you, then consider joining Frontiers Collective, the dynamic community that unites research scientists with a common purpose to achieve transformative research outcomes. In this private community, you'll have the opportunity to engage in thoughtful discussions, share ideas, and gain valuable insights from diverse perspectives. The Frontiers Collective serves as a platform for knowledge exchange where cutting-edge research across disciplines converge. To learn more, go to frontierscollective.com. Thank you. Back to the interview. Okay, that's, that's very clear. So I, I think um, bringing the examples to life It'd be helpful, I think, to start off with, and we'll see where we go with this, to take each corner of the triangle and say, can you just give us an example or two of, 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 of business models that sit in each of, those, each of those corners? So let's start with the ecological corner. What examples of business models of your 45 did you identify that would sit there? It's interesting. If you look at the triangle, you will find that most of those who have a relationship or who, who, who relate more closely to the ecological corner are sitting between the ecological and the economic corner. So um, we did not find purely ecologically oriented patterns. So because we were doing this research in a business context, there's always some relationship also to economic or financial issues. So uh, many of the, um, let's say, green patterns are sitting between the ecological and the economic corner. And my favorite example is um, the green razor and blade business model pattern. So I think um, you have heard about, you have heard of the classic razor and blade business model where customers buy a basic device like a razor handle. And, um, you know, for, for this handle to be useful, you need a blade. <laughs> And um, so this handle comes at a very low price or maybe even for free. But if you would like, you know, to, to shave your face, you would have to buy blades. 
And um, these are typically rather expensive. And what companies do with this razor and blade business model is they first, they um, decompose a solution, like, you know, shaving your face has been decomposed into, you have to have a handle and blades. And um, the second element is then a specific way of pricing these elements, which I already pointed to. The blades are rather expensive. They handle for free or at a very low price, which means that the revenue um, comes from the blades, comes from selling the blades. And um, what happens here is that a lock-in effect is, is, is created. So I, I own this handle and now I will always need, I, I always have to buy the blades that fit you know, with this handle because I don't want to buy new, new razor handles every week. And we know this principle from so many applications. Another very famous one is, you know, the modern way of preparing coffee. You know, uh, curing in, in the US and Nespresso, you know, who are more, more famous, um, they are using this razor and blade business model, you know, by selling coffee machines and um, also coffee capsules. And, and we know the consequences of these models. For the companies, it's um, very, very interesting and attractive because um, they are able to, to open up new and very strong um, revenue channels. But the downside is that um, in, in these cases, a lot of additional waste is, is being created. Yeah, so the Nespresso capsules alone, it's um, several thousands of tons of aluminum every year. So now they offer paper capsules. So let's see if the market will accept those. Um, but, but the downside is, you know, revenue as the revenue is growing, the waste stream is growing as well. And, and that's not a sustainable business model. It's financially viable and, and very interesting, but it's for sure not a sustainable business model as we would define it. So the green razor and blade is using the same principle, you know, um, a solution that has been um, designed in a way to offer different modules. But here the ambition is to have growing revenues without necessarily have growing waste streams. And here my favorite example is Soda Stream. I am I am pretty sure you know this bubble, you know, this um, sparkling water maker. And um, the basic device is, you know, the bubble maker, the device you have at home in your kitchen or in your office kitchen. And the blade is um, the gas cylinder. And this cylinder has been designed, you know, to, to be used as often or as many times as possible. It has been designed to be robust. It has, to, it has been designed, you know, to circulate, you know. And, and you know how it works. You, you buy the cylinder to be precise, you're not buying the cylinder. You're buying a license to use the cylinder. Then you use it, and if it's empty, you bring it back, and then it's refilled. You know, and another customer can use the cylinder. Um, and if you look into um, the numbers um, of um, that that SodaStream is publishing, which are hard to find, um, but but the numbers I found indicate that the majority of the main part of the revenue comes from the consumables from selling gas. Um, and not from, from the devices as such, you know, the bubble maker, which means this company opened a revenue channel, which, you know, fulfills an important service for customers. Customers appreciate it. They make a revenue with it, but they, in a way, decouple 
at least to a certain degree, revenue from waste creation. And that's what we call a green razor and blade. Very interesting. I love that SodaStream example. You don't see SodaStreams out there as much as, uh, as much as you used to. I remember having one as a kid. Um, but my kids don't have them. But that might be to do with the fact that I don't want them to have that type of stuff. But <laughs> So that's very clear. Um, and it is interesting that you didn't find these pure ecological business models. I'm, I'm, it's interesting and probably not surprising at the same time, because in the end, I would, should imagine that an organization has to generate some economic value, even if it has a ecological lens by which it designs its business model. Yeah, let's see. So um, as, as I said before, there's no this term of regeneration, which is becoming more and more popular. And I can imagine that we will find in the future some more, let's say, deep green business models where the emphasis is maybe more on ecological value creation than anything else. Okay, let's have a look at a different example. So do you have an example on the social corner of the triangle? Yes, of course. So we found um, several patterns which um, which can be used to support social purposes, like you know, including stakeholders in production, for example, um, making products and services available to certain stakeholders who maybe cannot afford it. And um, here, my favorite example is coming from India. It's um, Aravind Eye Care, and Aravind has been founded. Um, in the 1970s already. And um, the idea behind Aravind is to provide access to eye care services for people who are not insured or people who cannot afford medical services at all. And in India, you know, um, for example, cataract, uh, this is really an issue for, for people in India because if they lose sight, they lose their job, and then there is no economic social security at all for these people. So it's really an issue. And um, so the founder of Aravind um, founded this um, eye hospital based on the mission of providing eye care services to those who cannot afford it. And it's, it's you know, 50 years later, they are still in business and, and they really grew. It's, it's a big um, hospital chain nowadays. Um, thousands of um, doctors working for Aravind and they are treating... Um, I think it's around 250,000 patients for free a year, you know, and uh, I, I think um, there's a similar amount of paying patients. And um, it's based on the idea of um, a freemium business model. So you are for sure aware of freemium, you know, whenever you use um, a digital platform like the different Google services or Spotify, you know, you can benefit from it without paying, you know, in, in the free track, so to speak. But if you would like to unlock, you know, other features, functionalities, you know, then you typically have to pay kind of a monthly subscription fee or a yearly fee to get access to the premium um, features. And um, the idea of um, freemium it became popular not so long ago. I think it emerged around 2006, the way we use it nowadays. But if you look at Aravind, they are operating what we call a social freemium. And it's interesting because, you know, it, it has been invented half a century ago. And it works in by, first of all, allowing everyone to come to the clinic without an appointment, you know, you just go to the clinic 
And then you um, can decide whether you can or want to pay for the service or not. And um, this opens the door to those people who cannot afford eye care treatments, who have no insurance. But still, there is around 50% of patients who are willing and able to pay. And what Aravind is doing in the background is they are cross-subsidizing those who cannot pay for it based on the revenue they make with the paying patients. And this model is working and working and working, and it provides, you know, social benefits, you know, healthcare benefits to hundreds of thousands of people every year. It's such a strong social freemium business model. It, it's really, on the social side, my, my favorite case. And are the people that are paying, are they getting a better service, a different service, or are they getting the same service, but they're volunteering to pay for the same thing that they could otherwise get for free? Very good question. Because in, in, the, um, in the classic freemium model, the free customers get a different quality or level of service compared to the premium customers. So Arvind is, is, of course, also distinguishing between the offering for the free and the paying patients, but not, um, but not in terms of the eye care service as such. So the difference is more in the things, you know, surrounding the treatment, like the waiting rooms, you know, the number of beds in a room, is the air conditioning or not. But the eye treatment as such is the same for everyone. Interesting. So they're, they're feeling like they're probably getting a premium service wrapper, but not necessarily a premium product in the functional uh, thing that they're actually buying. That's a really interesting way of doing it, actually. I'm trying to think of a of a of a example that I could think of. And I can't think of another one uh, that would be that would be in a social in a social way one one that is that differentiates in in such a way. I I recently was um, discussing this case in class, and then an Indian student, you know, a person who really knows it from experience, was um, was even he was extending my lecture and he was um, giving me an update and it was super fascinating because he said that it's it's even working. At the door, you know, at the doorstep, when you when you reach um, at, when you um, when you're at the clinic at the hospital, there is a there's a, there's an important detail, which is that if you're a paying patient, you can tell you know the person letting you in how many free patients you would like to support, and then you say two, and then two. Patients who cannot pay will enter the clinic together with you. So it's even, you know, it's even kind of a physical act. You know, it's, 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 you really, it's happening in a very tangible way. You know, you enter the hospital based on your payment and you're bringing one or two other people with you who, because of you paying, get a treatment. And then this is, I think, a very important detail because, and that's also what the Indian student just to confirm, um, social status is so important in India. Yeah, I, I think in a country like Germany, you know, with our low cost mentality, you know, we would try to get everything for free. Um, but, you know, in, in other cultures, and in this case in India, you know, there's some social distinction is so important that this might be a, a strong motivation for people to pay for it. Yeah, very interesting. I love that example. So let's do one more example. And you can pick anywhere, 
anywhere in your of your 45 that you think would be really interesting to discuss? So some of these patterns are quite complex because they combine different mechanisms and some are more straightforward. So if we talk about the take-back management pattern, for example, I think, you know, by its name, it's clear what it's about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the circular economy patterns and um, it's um, a set of activities that companies can apply to make sure their used goods um, are, are being returned, you know, either to them or to a third-party service provider who is then, I don't know, recycling, refurbishing, whatever, the used products. But there are also more complex patterns. For example, the two-sided social business. And two-sided means that it has um, two main customer groups or groups of beneficiaries. And um, one group is, for example, people who have a special expertise. It's, for example, um, young doctors um, or aspiring doctors. And um, part of their training is to learn how to interpret, um, you know, medical data and how to translate it, you know, in, in, into layman terms so that a patient can understand what's going on. And then that's not trivial. And young doctors, aspiring doctors, you know, they have to be trained in that. And there's an organization which is um, on, on their platform, so to speak, inviting or giving the opportunity to young doctors to practice this based on real cases, based on real, you know, medical data. And the second group of beneficiaries are people who have a question, you know, laymen like you and me who have a question, for example, on a diagnosis they received. And they get this interpretation, they get advice and support from the young doctors for free. So for them, there's the benefit of, um, you know, getting information about complex medical issues. And on the other side of the platform for the young doctors, they have an opportunity, you know, to train and to learn and to improve their ability um, to give advice and to interpret medical data. And this platform brings together um, these two sides, you know, the young doctors and those um, people who need medical advice. You know, different mechanisms operating together and um, by, you know, combining those different stakeholder groups on one platform, you create you know, multiple types of value and benefits for those involved. Absolutely. So let's then get into practitioner thinking around around mm -hmm. this. So I've got your book. I've read the 11 themes. I've looked at the 45 patterns that you've identified. And I think to myself, I want to do two things. First, I want to understand the business that I'm leading and where it fits in this pattern model. And I also want to take advantage of one or more of them. So how would you go, how would you advise thinking about aligning a business to a set of patterns, one or more patterns, or starting a new business um, to take advantage of one of the patterns or to use use one of the patterns that you've identified? So sustainable business model design has been written and um, is being presented as, um, let's say, as a tool an ideation tool, that's how I would characterize it. Which means that in 
in settings like business development, um, developing marketing plans, developing strategies, whenever people are looking for new approaches and new ideas, um, for both cases, an existing business and a new business, they can, you know, refer to the 45 patterns and, you know, run their own kind of, you know, customized workshop based on it. So what we typically do is, you know, we do a one-day workshop in which we take a case, an existing case or a fictitious case, and then we help the workshop participants to, first of all, analyze the case, understand the challenge. So what I'm currently doing in my teaching is, for example, that I take a Berlin-based startup, which is trying to turn used coffee grounds into something useful. And um, so this obviously is kind of a circular economy case. And then in a one-day workshop, my students or executives I'm working with, they are analyzing the case. They spend some time on understanding the root causes. Where does the challenge come from? Why is it not easy you know, to reuse, for example, used coffee grounds? And then they engage in different exercises of, first of all, getting used to the framework of the 45 patterns, you know, prioritizing patterns, um, and then using these prioritized patterns to engage in different kind of ideation exercises. And at the end of the day, it's about, you know, drafting a more or less rough outline of a business model that, for example, helps with dealing with used coffee crowds, some kind of circular business model. So that's kind of the default mode in which we work with the patterns. Um, but we found that if you if you give the patterns to, to business people, they use it for different purposes. So we found out that one of the companies used it to set um, strategic priorities. So what, what they did is they used the 45 patterns and asked themselves, what are we already doing? And then they compared the actual activities to the 45 patterns. And then they started to cluster the activities using ESG, so environmental and social and governance issues, to cluster the ongoing activities with the help of the patterns. And in the next step, they prioritized what is now really what are key priorities in the things we're already doing. And, and we, we, you know, it was not our idea to do it this way. It was really kind of a user-based innovation, how, how you can use the patterns as a tool for self-reflection and also strategic priority setting. This, this, was, this was quite interesting to observe. That is interesting. And then if you take a different lens to this, so that's a proactive approach. So this is people that are running companies looking for ideas of how to improve their business model, build on their business model and so on. Mm. But the the other side, you also have governments and actually investors now demanding more a more sustainable framework for either the, the companies in their jurisdiction as a, of a government would be or investors that are, that are choosing to invest in. So it seems that there's obviously a movement towards sustainable business models anyway. So can you see any of the patterns emerging or can you see new patterns emerging as a result of things like regulation, things like a requirement to have a commitment to being net zero, a requirement to having a sustainable supply chain, um, to uh, to reuse renewable electricity. You know, these are the things that hit my world uh, on a day-to-day basis. And I wondered whether or not there were new things that were emerging um, or, um, or whether these things are essentially going to 
drive organizations towards the models that you are that you've already identified yeah this is a very important question so first of all there's so much going on so for example talking about um, the european union there are hundreds of frameworks laws and regulations that um, that aim to make business more sustainable so i'm not aware of all of these different um, pieces of legislation frameworks and so on so that that's the first thing there's a lot happening yeah which which we as consumers for example um you know do not recognize all the time so but what is obviously turning out to be a game changer um is not just the green deal of the european union but more specifically um the corporate sustainability reporting directive csrd and um the different environmental and social reporting standards um, related to the CSRD. This turns out to be a game changer. So at the moment, it's kind of a discourse changer. We get so many requests from companies, consultancies, who now have to somehow find a way of implementing and preparing themselves for implementing the CSRD. And... Um, from a business model perspective, this is very, very interesting because if you look at the requirements of the CSRD, it's a lot about making companies um, report on how they create value, how they create value with and for what type of stakeholder. They use the term business model a lot in the CSRD. So for me as a business model scholar this this will be very interesting you know in, in the medium to long term to observe in how far the csrd changes things in terms of how companies report on the activities how companies report on the business models how they report on value creation for stakeholders so but this is more on the level of self-reflection and reporting but the question is, will this lead to, you know, new adapted, maybe even radically, you know, um, um, new business models? I, I hope so. I, I really hope so. But um, at the moment, with the case of the CSRD, we are more talking about reporting and then trying to, to um, you know, to meet the requirements of this new reporting approach. It also seems to me, um, you know, ESG is one of my responsibilities in my in my executive role, and we have a lens of clearly what the government's requiring uh, and what our customers are requiring, but also what the investor population are requiring as well. And as you know, there's lots of rating agencies out there that give you a, a grade based on how sustainable you are, how economically friendly you are, and so on. And what I've noticed over the last two years of having this responsibility is that your rating can stay the same even though you're doing significantly more because it's a relative rating often. So the expectations are increasing every year. Uh, and it's really, really hard. If you stand still, you can't maintain your rating. It's basically impossible. You have to get better every year. So I think this kind of you if you're running your company, you've got this kind of twin requirement where you've got law and regulation that is driving you in one direction. And you've actually got your investors that are driving you in a what is almost always a complementary direction and in some ways moving a bit faster than the regulation because 
they're expecting you to behave in a different way ahead of time because they want to make sure that they're allocating their funds appropriately. So I can give an example that's illustrating exactly this this point. So I was contacted by by an SME here in Germany, 50 employees, you know, 5 million in revenues. Um, it's not a company that will be required very soon to report according to the CSRD. But it happened exactly what you just referred to. The investors who are supporting this firm, they ask them to, you know, be transparent about their ESG activities and performance. So there is no kind of um, regulation forcing the company to do so, but their investor <laughs> is now asking for this kind of information and transparency. Of, of course, from an investor's perspective, it makes perfect sense because, you know, dealing with ESG is, it's, it's just, it's, it's risk management. And that's what investors are doing, right? Um, and then this is now, you know, kind of trickling down, you know, to, to the different assets. In this case, a German small SME, you know, and then they now have to find out, you know, uh, how to do it. They, first of all, have to understand, oh, what are we actually doing at the moment? And, and how does it translate into some kind of sustainability performance? Yeah, so I think this is um, this is great. Of course, for business people, it's 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 a burden, it's additional effort and cost, but at the same time, it's clearly an investment in, in the future of business. Yeah, so for me, you know, personally speaking, there's no way around. Yeah, <laughs> um, and here, maybe in the next step, once these companies have done their homework and they are now prepared um, to, you know for, for the next um, um, for the next wave of, of sustainability reporting this in the best case opens the door for you know reconsidering their business models based on this new transparency and the new information they have about themselves because then questions come up like oh how can we, you know, for example, engage in take-back management? How can we decouple revenue from waste? How can we bring down our water consumption? And so on and so on. And this, at the end of the day, of course, leads to business model adaptations or maybe even business model innovation, you know, up to the point where business models are completely exnovated, which means replaced. Yeah, and actually what we're also seeing, and, and we are doing this with our suppliers, so we have our own strategy, our own business model, which is actually sustainable in nature and actually helps our, our customers be more sustainable because they're sharing workspaces, essentially. So they don't have their own offices. It's a shared it's a shared thing. I'm sure there's a business model pattern that it fits into. We've got our investors that are requiring us to be more sustainable. We've clearly got both um, national and sometimes local regulations that's requiring us to be more sustainable. And what we're now doing is looking at our suppliers. And we're asking them, we're applying the same standards to our supply chain because a lot of what we do is dependent on thousands of companies. So, you know, to use your small business example, we have contacted um, our suppliers of all shapes and sizes, including a company that might clean 11 of our locations in Vienna. And, and we've asked them to answer quite difficult questions about how sustainable their business model is and uh, and how their how sustainable their business is and and in almost all cases the smaller businesses in particular it's not even on their radar of something they're just trying to run a company they're just trying to deliver a service a product to you know businesses like the one that I work for or, or or equivalent so this whole trickle down effect i see in the real world is permeating and i think that that then forces people to do exactly what you said which is say 
okay, I've got these new demands from my customers. I may have, depending on the type of business I've got, got new demands from my shareholders, from my investors, and I've got new demands from, from the law, from the regulators. I now need to look at what I'm doing and I now need to design a different type of organization so I can stay around. Because um, in the end, I would imagine that quite a lot of these requirements will um, will just be mandated. It, it, it just levels the playing field, it just raises the bar in terms of what you have to do. I, and I have a lot of respect for, for those business people who have to deal with this because just as you say, they are trying to run a business and running a business, you know, without any sustainability considerations, it's such a big challenge. Yeah, And we know the numbers. We know that nine out of 10 new businesses fail and so on. So, and then adding, you know, this additional layer of complexity um, to it, you know, in terms of sustainability considerations, reporting, you know, requirements for products and so on and so on. This is, of course, a huge challenge. And, and I have a lot of respect for people, you know, who are able to manage all this. At the same time, I think um, things would be a bit easier if we as a society, um, including policymakers, would, you know, would, you know, revise our understanding of value and wealth and success. Because I think one of the biggest barriers still is our understanding of wealth and growth and success. Because it's all still coming, you know, from the good old industry age. And um, as long as we don't appreciate when business people, you know, perform ecologically well, you know, but maybe they might need a little bit of financial support to do so. As long as this is stigmatized and um, interpreted as a business person who is not successful, as long as that's the case, we will not really make progress. So this whole discussion around of this whole, you know, field of sustainable business models, it's also, you know, closely connected to, to asking questions like, you know, what do we value? What is progress? You know, what is wealth? And that's a debate that unfortunately we don't have enough, at least from my German perspective. You know, now we are for, for many years now living in times of crisis, you know, and if you're in a crisis mode, you just try to make sure every, everything is, is kind of, you know, not collapsing. And, and maybe that's a reason why we don't have this more fundamental discussions. But I think that's something we should have, you know. I completely agree. And maybe we'll end up there anyway. It will just be in a more reactionary, painful way than it could have been if you took a step back and thought about it holistically and strategically. I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll find out in time. So we could speak for another hour, but I think we probably should start to <laughs> start to draw it to a close. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, is there anything that you, any key message you'd like to give, or any topic that you think that we should cover that's particularly important before we before we finish? I think um, it would be great if people would understand you know these new things like um, new reporting requirements new demands from customers um, requests from investors if if this would be interpreted more like an invitation to be creative and innovative and not as something you know that people would try to to get rid of so so this would be one call I, I would like to make it's it's always an, an innovation you know to be innovative And in, in my case, or from my perspective, it's super important to rethink and innovate the business models companies are working with. So that's maybe a last 
message. Thank you. So where can we find more about your work? Online, of course. Um, so for example, um, on the book website, um, which is um, sustainablebusiness.design. And people can download a lot of resources for free, like a book preview, um, slide decks we're giving away for free, and, and, and much more. Very good. And I've been to that website. That's how, as I said, I found you, and it is incredibly useful. So, Florin, I very much appreciate you taking the time today to to discuss this uh, this topic, which I find fascinating. I think everybody listening will find it fascinating as well. Uh, I really recommend the book. I recommend going to the website. It's helped me a lot create a framework for thinking about these topics. And I, I think that's part of the way that I've used it myself. So, Professor Ludica Freund, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for having me. It was really great um, talking to you today. Thank you so much for listening. To support this podcast, please follow us on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you again. Hope to see you next time.